Governor J.B. Pritzker outlines new spending as he kicks off his second term. The state of our state is stronger than it has been in decades, and we're getting stronger every day. The governor's budget address and reaction coming up on WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm John Norton. Also on the show today, a Black History Month conversation with two of ISU's black faculty pioneers. Charles Morris says he sees troublesome times ahead after years of progress in civil rights. Instead of opening doors, they're closing them. Plus, temperatures have increased slightly in Illinois over the last century. A climate expert says that can make a big difference. That degree, a degree and a half Fahrenheit warming could mean you know, between 10 and 20 additional days over 95 degrees. Those stories follow a Bloomington Normal News update, which is just ahead. This is WGLT Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. BNA's educational video series, Hear My Story, continues with local patient Jerry Newkirk. In retrospect, absolutely, I wish wish that I would have done it sooner. It's, it's a very necessary sense that you need to take care of. Jerry's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. Just ahead, we're going to hear from a climate expert who explains how Illinois is seeing the impacts of higher temperatures and heavier rainfall. But first, Governor J.B. Pritzker has outlined a nearly $50 billion spending plan for the fiscal year that starts this July. It's bolstered by a combination of one-time federal revenue that helped retire debt, better-than-expected tax receipts, and cash from new funding sources. The governor wants to spend on ideas he says are now financially feasible. Alex Degman from IPR takes a look at the proposals and what others in Springfield are saying about them. Governor Pritzker sounded a positive tone. He says things are going great. The state of our state is stronger than it has been in decades and we're getting stronger every day. The governor's office of management and budget estimates the state will earn $49.9 billion over the next fiscal year from a combination of tax receipts, investment interest, fees, and more. That's roughly $1.5 billion less than the state's taking in this year, in part because the office expects at least a mild recession. And while revenue estimates for the current fiscal year have been revised upward more than once, budgeteers are not planning for that next year. Still, the governor is outlining new spending priorities in his $49.6 billion budget because he says the state has paid off much of its longstanding debt. As of fiscal year 2023, all of our state's short-term and medium-term liabilities will have been eliminated. All of it. Pritzker is referring to things like the long-standing bill backlog, unemployment insurance trust fund debt accrued during the COVID-19 pandemic, and delayed provider payments. State pensions are considered long-term liabilities and are not included in that debt payoff, although the governor's office notes they're slowly becoming healthier. Pritzker's key announcement was that he wants to spend $250 million next year to launch Smart Start Illinois, offering free preschool to three- and four-year-olds. Smart Start Pre-K will provide new center-based and school-based classrooms, improve quality across the board, attract new professionals to the field, and ensure that we reach our most vulnerable. 
In the first year alone, 5,000 more seats will be available for children across the state. But Pritzker is quick to point out you need staff, too, if you plan to add that many seats. Smart Start would expand a program to help people start early childhood education careers, noting the current teacher shortage. It would double the amount of money allocated to build new facilities in areas where there's limited access to preschool. And money could also be used to fix existing buildings and to expand early intervention services for children and their families before they get to pre-K. Pritzker also wants a path for low to middle income students to get free community college if they apply for a grant from the Monetary Award Program, otherwise known as a MAP grant. With a $100 million increase in MAP, we can make history. Together with Pell Grants, virtually everyone at or below median income in Illinois can go to community college tuition free. That means higher wages and better jobs in healthcare and IT, construction management, manufacturing, accounting, and much, much more. Pritzker also highlighted public safety and mental health efforts, noting there's money to continue hiring more Illinois State Police troopers and millions for a first-of-its-kind online resource portal for families seeking behavioral health care. The governor's Office of Management and Budget predicts personal income tax receipts will grow next year by a little more than 3 percent. But corporate taxes will decline and remain roughly flat, and sales taxes will stay flat or increase slightly. But it's just one budget estimate out of several that are used throughout negotiations. Both the House and Senate Republicans will be out with their own estimates. Senate Minority Leader John Curran, in a brief statement to reporters, said the governor's spending plan is more of the same. He pointed to Democratic Comptroller Susanna Mendoza's concerns about new programs that require permanent funding. We must heed the warning of the Comptroller, especially at a time we're likely headed towards a recession. We must stop the majority party from spending us into a tax increase. Though earlier this week, Governor Pritzker noted that Mendoza is in favor of some new spending, like increases to MAP grants. The Democratic caucuses in the House and Senate will come up with their own plans, too, over the coming weeks and months. That was Alex Stegman reporting from Springfield. Bloomington Mayor Mboko Malamwe was also on hand for the governor's speech. He got a shout out by name as the governor touted the impact of financial aid. Stories and conversations around Bloomington, Normal, and McLean County. This is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. Charles and Jean Morris of Bloomington were pioneering black faculty members at Illinois State University, who then became community leaders. They fought for and achieved real change for people of color in this community. The Morrises have earned the right to relax in retirement as Black History Month legends, but they're not relaxed. They're anxious about this moment in American history. WGLT's Ryan Denham has the story. Charles and Jean Morris are influencers, not the vapid tastemakers you see on social media, more like they've actually influenced the trajectory of the ISU campus and Bloomington Normal for six decades. When it comes to the trajectory of the country, they don't like what they see. They point to states like Florida, where activists say new election laws and congressional redistricting have made it harder for black communities to organize and vote. And as educators, they've watched as Florida's governor has signed a number of laws recently that restrict what can be taught in schools. The state's education chief says a proposed AP course on African-American studies is a woke indoctrination masquerading as education. Here's Charles Morris. These are very troublesome times. We, uh, over the years to the time that we moved, I was very hopeful and pleased. But what is going on uh, legislative-wise is the opposite. Instead of opening doors, they're closing them. 
Charles and Jean, also known as Dr. and Dr. Morris, moved to Normal in 1966. ISU recruited Charles. At the time, there were only two full-time black faculty members. They were coming from Champaign-Urbana, where they had successfully pushed for passage of an open occupancy ordinance to make it easier for people of color like them to find housing. When they arrived in Bloomington Normal, they found the same housing discrimination problem. So we dealt with open housing there, and when we got here, when you know it, open housing was an issue in Normal. We did it again. Charles and Jean remember well what it was like to look for a home to rent back in 1966. It's not the kind of thing you forget. People would put their signs out for rent. We'd go up and express an interest. No luck. One owner met us at the driveway and told us, no, go away. We also uh, approached a realtor at the time about helping us find housing. No help from him. The Bloomington City Council passed an open occupancy ordinance in 1967, but Normal dragged its feet. Eventually, state and federal law did it for them. They eventually found a place to rent and later bought property and built a home that they lived in for 53 years. Open occupancy and uh, breaking down those barriers which existed was uh, something that occupied our time and interest for many years. Now, they were faculty members. ISU's black students felt prejudice on two fronts, for being black in a white town and for being college students in a town with an uneasy relationship with its college. And more black students were coming in. In 1968, ISU launched its High Potential Student Program to recruit black students from the Chicago and St. Louis areas. Charles became director of that program. That program was significant in that it made quite a, it made a big change in the population here for students on the campus at ISU. But those students faced housing discrimination when they tried to find off-campus rentals. In the early 70s, the Morrises and three other couples took the initiative. They bought four houses themselves and rented them to students of color. For the Morrises' rental, Jean did all the work. It was like having a, several children because you could administer to them and help them. And that was, that was the satisfaction. They were good kids and they wanted to do the right thing. So it was just my family just grew larger. By then, Jean was on the ISU faculty too, training teachers and recruiting families for a relatively new early childhood education program called Head Start. The Morrises took on a lot. They advised fraternities and sororities and the campus's NAACP chapter. Charles became ISU's first academic senate chair, later an administrator. Some would understandably be overwhelmed by the weight of that. The Morrises said they weren't. It felt natural. They knew they had to be active to create change. Charles's father was a businessman who led black people in Virginia to seek status, and Jean's mother was an elementary school teacher and principal in South Carolina. She made many changes because she would not allow her children, her students, to be mistreated. One of the things she did was to change the distribution of textbooks that they would give to the rural school children and uh, would give the used books from the white schools until one day she said, if I can't have new books for my children, I don't want any. And they said, okay. <laughs> and they changed the rule. <laughs> 
So, you know, we, we're used to standing up for, we weren't, we, I don't think we've ever asked for more, we've asked for equal. And for a while, the Morrises say it felt like things were going in the right direction. They were inspired by new initiatives like Illinois State University's Multicultural Center, which features a social justice library that bears their name. They've been similarly impressed by the launch of the Bloomington Normal NAACP's Youth Council in 2021, which recently completed a documentary about the Morrises. Those youngsters are alert, they listen, they study, and they're going to be the, they're the hope of the, the world. You have to get more of those. But those young people are living in a cultural moment all their own, and it's one that troubles both Charles and Jean. Things are different than they were in the 60s when we were facing with those struggles. And different even before the 60s when the doors were closed completely. We weren't able to enroll that. I couldn't go to the University of Virginia. Jean couldn't go to the University of South Carolina. Those have been structural changes which are very significant. There are still those who deny that systemic racism that exists. Leaders, some of our public leaders in the Senate and and mostly in the House, are still denying that racism exists (laughs) when they are involved in trying to give them new life. (laughs) Republicans are closing doors, making it more difficult. The time of the life that we were in, we were very hopeful that the time had passed for racism to be so embedded in the culture of the United States. But obviously, that is not the case. We still have some of those instances that we have to deal with as at our ages, where we are, where we live, where we shop. You know, we, we confront some of those issues still. And it's, it's very maddening. That's Gene and Charles Morris of Bloomington who spoke with WGLT's Ryan Denham. You can learn all about their remarkable life and find a link to their 2017 McLean County History Makers biography at WGLT.org. When we talk about armoring campuses against mass shootings, we may be ignoring an uncomfortable truth. There was research the FBI did many years ago about targeted school shootings. Only about 10% were by people that had no connection to the institution. What do you do when the school shooting threat comes from within the school community? On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen tomorrow from 4 to 9 a.m. on WGLT. 
89.1 FM and WGLT.org. Sound Ideas is WGLT's news magazine. Thanks for listening. I'm John Norton. Much like the rest of the world, Illinois' climate is changing over time. That has a lot of implications, from more intensive rainfalls and increasing flash flooding to traditionally southern critters like the armadillo and Gulf Coast tick making their way up to central Illinois. Illinois state climatologist Trent Ford tells Tim Shelley from sister station WCBU there's two main things to know about Illinois' climate change. Illinois has gotten warmer and wetter over the last hundred years, and uh, when we look at model projections of the future, they suggest that that kind of warmer and wetter trend is likely to continue through the through the end of the 21st century. And what does that mean exactly? Like, I know we say warmer, like if, if, if I say it's going to be like a degree, a degree and a half warmer uh, on average, you know, so it doesn't sound like very much. I mean, what's what's the actual effect of that? Yeah, yeah. So that, that's the thing is that when we look at global warming, uh, as well as kind of regional scale warming, like what we've experienced here in Illinois, it, it's not a, a lot of warming when we think about the difference between that and, and say, day-to-day temperature variability. For example, you know, yes, today's high is going to be 20 degrees warmer than tomorrow's high, and we've only increased a, a, the state of Illinois a degree and a half Fahrenheit in the last hundred years. But because we're talking about a statewide average, a large area, and that's the average temperature, that increase is is really representing a tremendous increase in energy stored. And, and that's a global issue, but of course the regional climates follow suit. And so what that does is it changes sort of the baseline climate onto which the weather sort of operates. And so what that means is it changes our extremes. So we think about the acute sort of impacts, including weather extremes that come along with with, uh, with climate change. So even that degree or degree and a half Fahrenheit increase can mean, let's say, 20, 30, 40 percent more uh, in precipitation intensity or heavy rainfall events, for example, which have their own impacts, of course, for flooding and agriculture and urban planning. Uh, that, that degree, a degree and a half Fahrenheit warming could mean, you know, between 10 and 20 additional days over 95 degrees uh, in the summertime for Peoria. So, you know, the, these sorts of impacts come from those extremes, but also from what I kind of call the, the chronic changes. So that background warming, especially in the wintertime, um, you know, we're not talking about winter heat waves or anything like that, despite how, how mild this last winter or this last month has been. Um, but the, the background warming in winter uh, really changes, uh, can change the pro profile of our, for example, natural ecosystems, uh, because a lot of the the native plants uh, and, and animals, the flora and fauna, you know, have adapted to the climate we have now. And in, in many cases, the winter temperatures are sort of the limiting factor, one of the limiting factors of, of what species can uh, survive here and which, which ones can thrive. And so seeing a, a slew of invasive or non-native species of plants and animals coming on, and that those sorts of impacts are less, let's say, um, you know, camera uh, uh, worthy than um, the, you know, the, the larger flooding events, and things like that. But they're impactful nonetheless when we think about different uh, differences in, um, you know, a pollinator species and, um, you know, impacts from uh, different types of insect pests for agriculture and things like that. So, yeah, the, the actual number, the amount of warming, I, I kind of don't report that often, very often. Now it's in the assessment because it's, you know, it's an important number. But, uh, but often that can sort of seem, like you mentioned, very small. Uh, but the, what that kind of represents is actually much larger. And you mentioned several things I want to uh, dig a little bit deeper into there, but starting with those precipitation numbers you're talking about, 40% more precipitation. Of course, we're right here on the Illinois River, so 
we're used to seeing some flooding, but with that much more precipitation, we're talking more flooding, more extreme flooding. I mean, that, that's a big change potentially. Yeah, so the actual total amount of rainfall is about four or five inches more than what we were, let's say the twenty, the turn of the 20th century. The the kind of the 20 to 40% increase is, as I was talking about, is, is it kind of the extreme end of precipitation. So a, an increase in the very extreme forms of rainfall. Um, and yeah, that, that's sort of, that's what we're seeing is that those types of heavy rainfall events are becoming more frequent and more intense. Um, and so they have flooding, like you mentioned, along our large Large river systems like the Illinois River, and that is problematic. But to get the Illinois River to to spike, to flood, to overtop uh, a lot of the critical thresholds before we see you know downtown Peoria flooded, um, it really takes a, a lot of rain over a relatively large area because the Illinois River drains a very large area. So this is really flash flooding we're talking about. Yeah, uh, kind of like flash flooding. Yeah, um, you know, flash flooding has a specific kind of uh, definition the National Weather Service uses. Uh, but yeah, it is it is that kind of flooding. And you know, the, the, the real problem with that is that um, this is uh, affecting areas that have not been mapped because they're not in floodplains. So the risk of, of these areas to flooding is not necessarily as well quantified as, as what we have for, for um, riverine flooding, for example, where, again, we've, you know, ideally, and the state of Illinois has done a good job of doing this, is mapping those out and, and building resilience and thereby not allowing a lot of development in those floodplains. So when people think about climates, past, present, and future here, and, and they see things are getting wetter, they're getting warmer. Um, I think sometimes it's hard for people to really, because it happens so slowly, right? It's, it's hard for people to actually really take those effects in. Sometimes you might hear somebody say, well, it seems like winter's a little less extreme maybe than it was when I was a kid 30, 40 years ago, but it, it's kind of hard to really wrap your head around it sometimes. How, mm -hmm. how do you as a uh, kind of an educator and an expert really kind of help do that? Some of these things we've been talking about, like these, these, these slow changes, are really hard to, to demonstrate. And I mean, we can't have the hard data to do it, but study after study after study um, uh, in our off kind of ne neglected social sciences uh, says that data is not what demonstrates, right, the, the, the climate change to people. It's not what makes the point. It's, it's these experiences. And so often the things like we just talked about, seeing an armadillo. And, and growing up, you know, I grew up in the Peoria area, and I never saw an armadillo. So seeing a dead armadillo on the side of the road near Pekin is, is weird. It's, it's very strange to me. Um, uh, seeing, for example, flooding of areas that had never flooded before, or at least not to that extent. Um, you know, seeing uh, the, the intensity of the rainfall. And I'll tell you, I mean, I was going around the state talking to lots of people with lots of ideas, different ideas about what climate change may or may not be, the, the most nods come from it, rainfall intensity. I say rainfall is just getting more intense, and I don't have to show any data to prove that. People are just like, yes, we've experienced that. We know that. Now, I really, the conversation anymore is, I mean, there's still, you know, areas, corners where really the conversation is, you know, trying to convince somebody that climate change is real. But anymore, a lot of the conversation is, is around, okay, great, it's going on. What do we do with it? How, how do we how do we how do we make these changes? How do we do something to to ensure that we um, that we're healthier and 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 uh, and wealthier than we were um, before in, in the face of climate change? That was Illinois State climatologist Trent Ford speaking with Tim Shelley from sister station WCBU about climate change. 
And that's Sound Ideas today. WGLT's news magazine is made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm John Norton. Story help today came from IPR's Alex Stegman, WCBU's Tim Shelley, and WGLT's Ryan Denham. The show was produced by Samantha Hill. This is 89.1 FM, WGLT, and WGLT.org, Bloomington Normal's public media, part of the NPR network. Thank you.